Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the nations of the Americas are no strangers to civil unrest, and recent developments in the region have resulted in a rise of dissatisfaction with governments across the hemisphere. Although these uncertainties have various country-specific factors, several region-wide similarities are clear, including concerns over public health, security, corruption, and even democracy itself. Most notably, protests in Colombia have attracted international attention, with citizens calling for police reform, among other demands. Nations across the hemisphere are watching the situation in Colombia closely, as neighboring governments fear similar unrest within their own borders. Today, our panel will discuss the most recent protests across the region and where else we might expect similar unrest. First, let's meet our roundtable. Welcome back to the program, Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Nice to be here, John. Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour. Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. And Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Redman. Hi, John. Welcome back, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, Cindy, let's begin with you, if we could. Uh, Tell us about the protests in Colombia, what first started as uh, tax reform measures or tax increase measures and austerity measures has ballooned into something much more than that. Tell us what's happening. Sure. Well, as you know, the the trigger for this round of protest uh, was a tax reform proposal introduced by the government in mid-April, and it was subsequently withdrawn because the the proposal was uh, actually quite comprehensive um, in the sense that it would raise taxes on the wealthiest, provide uh, expanded and permanent subsidies to poor households. But the part that was just unacceptable to the vast majority of Colombians was that it would have raised the so-called VAT tax, the value added tax, which is like a sales tax on a number of products that everyday people buy, milk, uh, things that are part of the basic, you know, household basket of, of goods. And you know, incomes have shrunk because of the pandemic. Um, the unemployment rates are up. Um, the definition, actually, of what's middle class in in the Colombian context is a little, um, you know, a little squishy. Um, and people just said, "This is not the moment." And so the protests erupted over that. But it soon became apparent that there were just, you know, all this frustration over unmet needs over. Um, issues that had been part of the protests in in November of 2019 that had been sort of swept under the rug during all of these COVID lockdowns, you know, had still not been, uh, had not been addressed. And so it's, there's almost a free for all now um, with demands for police reform, for greater uh, equity and uh, a universal basic income for student groups, for labor groups, for indigenous groups, and it's going to be very, very hard, I think, to unwind um, the tensions that exist at this point. 
what's the latest circumstance on the ground as we record today on, on May 18? Uh, are things beginning to show signs of subsiding or is it still unrest full steam ahead? I think it's uh, it's still a lot of unrest. And, and what's happening as well is that even before these protests erupted, Colombia was in the midst of just a devastating um, third outbreak, third wave of COVID infections. And the country now has one of the highest rates of COVID deaths, not per capita deaths, just absolute numbers of deaths in the entire world. Um, I've heard uh, reports that it's number three in the world after India and Brazil. Um, I think it, the real figure is closer to five, but it's a very, very severe situation, which is replicated in, in many countries of the hemisphere, you know, where hospitals are overcrowded, whatever. And these large concentrations of people in the streets is not helping the situation. Um, and, you know, people living under quarantine while your incomes are shrinking, while you're in close quarters with other people, um, you know, is just, you know, a very, very volatile uh, situation, not only in Colombia, but in other parts um, of, of the region, if not the entire world. So the, the administration of President Duque was trying to do something that was seen as fiscally responsible rather than just have the fiscal deficit balloon because you're continuing to provide subsidies to poor households um, and spend what you're not bringing in. They wanted to bring in more money. But the way they went about it and the sort of lack of sensitivity to the sort of feelings of ordinary people, I think, was really a critical piece of this. And just one last thing that I'll mention um, is that there has been the, the, the demonstrations by and large have been peaceful, but there has been a small minority um, of people involved in the demonstrations who have been extremely violent and have, you know, burned public transportation buses in, in Bogota, the, the unique system known as the Transmilenio, um, crippled, you know, a, a huge percentage of the public transportation infrastructure. Um, police stations have been attacked, uh, stores and, 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 uh, and businesses. Um, and the, um, the initial police response to that was also extremely violent. And that only served in many ways to throw gasoline on the fire and inflame public sentiment even more, to use probably not the greatest metaphor, but, you know, people just outraged by police opening fire um, uh, on crowds of demonstrators and launching tear gas projectiles that were hitting people in the face. And, and this has been another issue that has been kind of added to the list of grievances expressed by people in the streets. Thank, thank you, Cindy. I want to I want to ask everyone else to weigh in. And, and here's the question. What other situations would you point to around the region where you see either outright acute stage unrest as we're seeing in Colombia, or you see the potential for that. And then my question is this one, and it's for Cindy, we'll get you to weigh in on this again as well. But for everyone, how much, when Cindy described this, what always comes up in our discussions in the year of 
pandemic or the year plus of pandemic is the pandemic, right? It's inescapable. It's a historic moment. It underlies so much of what we're talking about. And what I'm wondering is when you look around the region and you look about uh, at circumstances where the electorate is unhappy with leadership, uh, is this a function of the pandemic? Can leaders get off by blaming the pandemic? Or is this a circumstance where the pandemic has just uh, ripped off the uh, the the the, the seatbelts. And there were things that were happening and that were boiling or reaching a simmering stage before this. And now it's just been exposed in a way where people have had enough. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, John. That, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. And I, I'm sure it's different in every country. And maybe the answer is that in some ways, the pandemic provided cover. Everyone was so focused on the pandemic that they weren't thinking about other things. And then something happens, there's some kind of a shock that um, causes people to suddenly focus on reality. In, in Mexico City, it was the, the metro accident a couple weeks ago uh, that resulted in, in numerous injuries and, and several deaths. And suddenly there was a focus on uh, the way Mexico City has been governed and managed and infrastructure spending, which nobody had been talking about previously. So there's probably other examples of, of that sort of reaction. Well, that's really interesting, Andrew. So essentially, you're saying it can work both ways, right? Uh, the, the pandemic could be the catalyst for a boiling point. It also could be something that uh, you know keeps things in a static state because everybody's focused on the pandemic. And I think it depends, John, in part on how governments are responding um, obviously, the pandemic, because it, it has you know, made it harder to work, it's made it harder for people um, to go outside. Um, it has created these challenges. But, you know, in Brazil, for example, there was a lot of concern a year ago that the pandemic could actually create conditions for social unrest, right, that you could see people in the street violence. Um, and in response to that concern, at least in part, the government you know, instituted this massive emergency aid program where it was sending money to poor Brazilians um, month after month. And it actually decreased poverty, right? So Brazil saw poverty fall during the pandemic because of government spending. What we've seen now is that the government no longer has the money to do it at such a scale. So they have a smaller version of the aid program that, that started last month. Uh, but a recent poll found that 87% of people think that aid is insufficient. So going forward, the government's going to have to figure out, you know, how does it handle the fact that there are 14 million unemployed people in Brazil, um, you know, of, of young people, right, ages 15 to 29, about 25% are either not working or not uh, in education. Um, and so there is this potential, and it remains to see what's going to happen. Percent. It's interesting to hear uh, everyone talking about what's happening around the region, and it may surprise people, but but Canada has been seeing an increased uh, number of protests, and they've become quite sizable by Canadian standards. Last week, we had 100,000 people in Montreal protesting, and it's been an interesting mix. Many of them are protesting the lockdown or the mask requirements. Others are protesting uh, in favor of the Palestinians, you know, a, a faraway cause, but it's bringing people to the streets. And and it's been fairly violent protests, which is also not uh, typical of Canada. In Hamilton, for example, last week, they uh, arrested 22 people for uh, vandalism and riot-related misbehavior. In Calgary and Edmonton, they've had major protests and made a little more complicated by the fact that uh, the Calgary mayor, who is 
uh, of South Asian ethnicity uh, said that the protests were thinly veiled white supremacist rallies. And that, of course, offended some of the protesters and it's got, got uh, even further out of control. And even in little Glencoe, Ontario, if you've never been, it's it's sort of between Toronto and Windsor. Um, there was a protest that's been going on for several days because the Canada Post post office workers evicted a woman who re- who refused to wear a mask in the post office. Uh, and she was thrown out of the post office, and it's led to protests ever since. So it, this is something that is very human, and I think it is a, a consequence of the lockdown and other things. But it's also something which, even where you have relatively um, better wealth conditions and you have a relatively orderly society with lots of outlets, it's still you know, leading angry people to get into the streets. And I think that that's very important for us to, as Americans to understand because – it's not just something that could happen far away. It's something that's happening even in uh, friendly old Canada. Cindy Johnson. John, yeah, you mentioned at the, at the outset that there had been protests in Latin America in 2019. And I think what happened is that the pandemic really just pushed those underground. None of the underlying issues had really been addressed, but the lockdowns and the severity of the public health uh, crisis in in throughout the region, which has really been the hardest hit economically and in terms of COVID deaths of any place in the world, you know, just brought this all just put a lid on everything. Um, and all it took is like one little fissure for all of that boiling frustration that was maximized by the pandemic, by the frustrations of not being able to go to work, not having your kids in school, not having your kids with access to education, um, and having, you know, obvious inequalities where wealthy people are flying off to Miami or Houston to get vac- to get vaccinated, uh, and the vaccine distribution rate in Latin America has been extremely problematic. I would say as a region in general, 10% or less of the population has received vaccines. Colombia is probably somewhere near that that, uh, median, maybe around 8%, but they cannot access vaccines. So the path out of the pandemic and out of these quarantines and lockdowns is not at all clear. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's a very, very difficult situation. Different countries have responded in different ways. Peru is in the midst of an election where an outsider leftist candidate previously who didn't even register in the polls going into the first round several weeks ago uh, with the second round taking place uh, on June 6th. is leading by a narrow, narrow, you know, margin, but with very radical kinds of economic plans about nationalizing key industries and redistributing. Um, in Chile, there was just a big election for a new uh, constituent assembly. There's a, an institutional channel for a lot of the grievances that were expressed beginning in October 2019 when Santiago and other cities just uh, erupted in these mass demonstrations. So the um, the combination of, you know, close to a decade of low growth and a lot of dissatisfaction with the way democracy functions, you know, those are sort of like the pre-existing conditions on which all of these other frustrations have been built. And then we hit the tipping point or, or the straw that breaks the camel's back. Andrew. Thanks, John. Picking up on on what Cindy was saying, um, Mexico, too, as we've discussed before, has midterm elections on June 6th. And and I was going to suggest that 
be interesting to see if if that is an is sort of an escape valve that gives people a chance to express their frustration and we'll see how much you never know how much you can read into an election result but if the ruling party doesn't do well i i think it would be reasonable to assume that the metro crash and the response to covid and and the economic the slow economic recovery all that that, that voters are expressing their frustration with that um so maybe that in some ways accounts for less protest because if you know you've got an election coming up that's where you're focused in in attempting to unpack this unanswerable question of you know the chicken or the egg conundrum that we've been wrestling with what came first the pandemic or the unrest or whatever the case may be the you know i think back to before the pandemic and when we were talking about issues not just in the americas but across the world one of the main discussion points was this rise of nationalism and populism and I wonder how much of this is where populist movements and the lack of trust in institutions meet a global crisis like the pandemic, and then everything begins to unravel. And, and if that's the case, when we try to think uh, past the pandemic and trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, are, is the focus on what Cindy identified, this the inequality, is that the thing that sits at the center of all of this that exacerbates every problem that comes down the pike? In the in the case of the pandemic, access to vaccines alone would be one example of the haves versus the have-nots. I think, John, a lot of it has to do with whether people believe that their future is going to be better than their present. Um, I was living in Brazil in 2013, right, when there were massive demonstrations across the country, um, started with a, a transit fare hike you know, tiny amount of money and, and it spread into, you know, millions of people in the street protesting corruption and poor education and lack of investment in infrastructure. And I think in Brazil, you know, eight years later, those challenges still haven't been addressed, right? And there have been protests ever since, you know, not as big as they were that year. Um, but in many ways, you know, the protests of 2013, you know, you can trace the link to Jair Bolsonaro winning in 2018 and to the current polarization in Brazil and lack of faith in um, the Brazilian government. And so I think, you know, um, all of this, you know, it's just it's incredibly hard to for a government to address it if, you know, one, there isn't economic growth. Right. Brazil has essentially stagnated. Um, for the last decade. Um, and if there isn't a government that actually represents the interests and the desires of the people. Anya, you've, you've helped us distill the problem to an even more fundamental level. Do people wake up in the morning with hope for the future? John, one of the things that I think is, is striking is that, you know, populist governance is not necessarily the end result. Um, of of the moment that we're seeing in Latin America, um, because the Ecuador elections that were held earlier this year represent just the opposite, where the populist, the the person who was seen at, first of all as leading in the polls, but also as being the kind of anointed successor of a populist leader from previous years, Rafael Correa, actually lost. And the person who won the election is uh, from the business sector. Um, I would call him center-right, Guillermo Lasso. He is going to face an enormous problem because he has a massive 
package or rescue package from the IMF, he's going to have to implement some kind of fiscal austerity uh, to be able to meet debt obligations. At the same time, he tries to, um, you know, uh, reactivate the economy through private sector investment and whatever. Um, And that is a very volatile situation. He does not have a majority in the legislature. So I see Ecuador as um, having a political outcome that would run sort of counterintuitive to what we would expect, but with still all of these underlying challenges that have to be managed extremely carefully and with very little margin of of maneuver. Chris It's one of the other interesting dimensions of this is is how federalism has, I think, created a shock absorber for, at least in the Canadian case. Some people are frustrated with Justin Trudeau and the slow delivery of vaccines, but the provinces actually run the healthcare system on a day-to-day basis. And if you look at a place like uh, Ontario, Ontario has gone into a its third big and, and more severe than in the past lockdown. And there's a lot of protests against the populist premier, uh, Doug Ford, uh, whose brother was also uh, premier and mayor of mayor of uh, well, not premier, but mayor of Toronto, uh, and people are really going at him because they're frustrated and he's not doing enough about it. Then you look at Quebec next door, and François Legault runs a, um, a a fairly conservative populist government, and he has been very popular because they haven't had the experience of variants. He's bringing in new language laws to toughen the penalties for businesses and others that try to rely on English and not put French in a prominent place. He's found a formula that has made it successful for him. So there's a lot of performance factors in how people respond to their politicians. Yes, they're frustrated, but they they are judging as whether a politician, whatever their party is doing enough or or perhaps uh, even distracting them very well so that they're not getting mad at, at other things. And for a hemisphere that's in the middle of an election super cycle with so many opportunities for people to vent, it, agree with Cindy, it's not necessarily guaranteed that incumbents are going to be washed out by this. There's a lot that they can do, and the way they do it, uh, the empathy which with with which they're able to lead, and the results that they get from that, all are going to be important factors. So actions, and, and more important than actions, the actual results um, out are more important than ideology or any other considerations at, at this point. So where do we look? You know, often we try to uh, find the uh, the silver lining in the dark clouds. You know, where do we look for or trend lines that might be more hopeful? Maybe the emergence of new leaders or young leaders or someone with a different idea. And, and this is a circumstance that often the problems we talk about have a, a an economic aspect to them where we can draw the dividing line or where countries that are struggling and countries that aren't. But as Chris mentioned, with some unprecedented recent violence in Canada, in the United States, the attack on the Capitol. I mean, we, we're seeing things in, in other countries that have been more immune from these kinds of uprisings. Uh, so w- what does this pretend for the future? Let's look ahead in the few minutes we have remaining and see if there are any things that you can identify in the hemisphere that would qualify as trend lines that might be telling us that there are going to be different responses moving forward from different types of leaders, or maybe just different notions from the electorate. Chris. I hate I hate to jump in, but one of the things that we're starting to see is some strengthening in commodity prices. 
And that's usually a sign of recovery. The U.S. is coming. Uh, our economic performance has been better, et cetera. And for much of the region, I include Canada in this, commodities are a big income generator. And so if commodity prices rise and, the, and there are more resources for governments to deal with, that portends very good things for investment in public health systems to try to catch up. So it may be a race against time, but if we continue to see strengthening commodity prices, that might be a positive trend line that gives governments more to work with uh, and gets people back to work again also. I think, John, the, the real outcome that would be desirable, and it's not clear that yet it's a trend, is that because the pandemic has laid bare in such dramatic fashion the huge inequalities that exist, you know, people who have access to computers or internet, those who don't, therefore those who are able to go to school online or work online, um, all those kinds of inequalities have been laid bare during the time of the pandemic. So the optimistic view would be that coming out of this, that Latin America will be a more inclusive place. Um, but if the governance institutions, if rule of law is not strengthened and faith in the democratic sort of procedures and processes, you know, basic procedures of democracy are not strengthened and institutions strengthened. If corruption is still runs rampant, um, it's going to be, I think, a very ugly outcome. I would just add to what Cindy said, you know, we're seeing, I think, more marginalized groups gaining a greater voice through protest, right? In Brazil, we've seen, um, you know, black and brown Brazilians protesting police violence. Um, you know, certainly over the last year, this has gained traction. And so my hope is is that, um, you know, these protests have the power to lift some of these issues up and, and make them of interest to the political class. Well, you've done a good job of identifying some potential silver, silver linings. You know what this always comes down to, right, is there, the, the future is not preordained. We're going to find out. And I guess our best hope is that uh, things will begin to get better before they continue to go worse. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. We're, we're not here to, to, you know, sell false hope. On the other hand, we do want to be optimistic, right? We do want to hope for the best. So thanks to all of you, as always, for a very thoughtful and insightful discussion. And we'll look forward to seeing you back next time for more of that. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.